0: Hebrews 13, verse 4, closing admonitions for a suffering church that was surrounded by hostility, not just physically, but also with regards to truth, the truth they believed. And here's just a practical exhortation for believers in the face of a contrary world. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for grace. I ask for grace because we are surrounded with lies so that we breathe them in. We don't even always realize um, that we are subject to them, day in, day out, things we hear, things we watch, the people that we love, Lord, so often we are surrounded by contrary influences of your word, of your truth, and so many believers have been taken captive by lies these days, so many professed believers, have walked away. With regards to these issues, we are finding a division taking place. Will we believe your word regarding sexual righteousness or we, will we believe this world? Which is being led by the same deceit and same deceiver that we saw in the beginning. Question, has God said, Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear, hearts that are soft, that we would hear and understand and believe, and so glorify our Father in heaven, not with just believing, but with doing righteousness. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The first thing I want to do this morning as we continue our series of sexual, biblical sexuality and sexual righteousness, you may have noticed the topic that I, well, my title, natural sexual sins, Um, that's a little bit misleading. What I mean by that is sexual sins that regard male and female. In a sense, that's a natural form of sexual sin because God created us male and female in his image. And in creating us male and female, He created us compatible with each other sexually. And the distinction there is that's a natural compatibility. And yet the reason why I say it's a little bit misleading to say that this is natural sexual sins is because all sin is unnatural. And sexual sins are outside the boundaries of God's created purpose, even for men and women. So this is unnatural in regards to design, but it's natural in regards to the actual act of a male and female coming together. So maybe forget all that uh, and just hear what I have to say. But, but I also want to say this. Why do we care so much? I, I preached a few sermons ago, I forget how many now, three I guess, ago on why it matters. Why sexu- human sexuality matters. Why does it matter that we have a biblical word regarding sexual righteousness and, and one of the questions comes, and I've answered that question there three sermons ago, I think most profoundly from Scripture, uh, that answer was given. But one of the questions comes to us is, why are you preaching on sexual righteousness and not greed or envy or all of the other sins, gluttony? Whoa, that, that's maybe something I should take up, huh? Huh? Why preach about sexual righteousness with regards to all the other sins that are out there? And to be sure, there is a time and a place to preach on other sins topically just like I preached and I'm preaching on this topic. But I want to suggest to you that the reason why this comes home so closely to the Christian church these days is because I don't see a broad and concerted effort in our society To not only suggest that it's okay to be greedy, that it's okay to be envious and jealous, and that it's okay to steal and to hurt and to maim and to murder and, and all of those sins, but I do see in our society that it's not only okay to live sexually unrighteous lives, but it's to be celebrated. It's to be, as a sort of dogma in our culture, accepted and celebrated by everybody. And so what we're faced with with the Christian church is not just people doing sins. We're, we're, we're faced with a, an ultimatum that contradicts the word of God that says you do this or you're not acceptable Christian. You accept me or you're not acceptable. You live like this or you're not loving towards me. We are faced directly at the point of our faith in the Word of God when it comes to the matters of sexual righteousness. So if you're out there and you're saying, oh, he's just so up and he's uptight about this one issue, he's just uptight about this one issue, there are times when the world around us demands that we speak about a particular matter. I think in the times when there was The slave trade as it was happening. There were a few pastors preaching about the evil of that day. And they should have preached about the evil of that day. It's one of the duties of a pastor to preach about the sins of the day and the acceptable sins in a a given culture. And so this is one of the reasons why I'm coming to you again with regards to biblical sexuality. So we're talking about natural sexual sins, sins between men and women. These are not little inconveniences that we face in our society there as regards to Christians and righteousness. They hit home, every one of them hit home in the church. You know, I think of our culture and I think of our culture in regards to sexuality And I see it as, I went to a rodeo last night. Some of our other Christian brothers and sisters were there last night. But if you think about herding animals, not hurting, but hurting them, oftentimes it's a slow process. To move animals in a way that you want them to go is a slow process. And you can be moved in the right way. My shepherd, he supplies my need. We are called the sheep of his pasture. We should be led by our good shepherd. But we can also be led by lies. We can be led by lies. And those lies don't lead us any more immediately oftentimes, especially on a broad scope, on a large scale. Oftentimes, lies can lead us right over the edge individually because the consequences of our sins are known. But I'm talking about broadly as a culture, we can view what is happening to us with regards to sexual unrighteousness, somewhat like the herding of perhaps, let's say, whatever, whatever you want to say, swine, sheep, whatever. We are being herded. We are being surrounded by a a set of lies and principles that are leading us, and I would say, quickly off a cliff. And, And here's... As it dawned on me, it didn't start with transgenderism, did it? In fact, it didn't even start with sexuality. It started much deeper than that. It started with the question in the Enlightenment, do we have to obey this God if there is one? Can't man be the measure of all things? And, and if God is displaced, well, desires come to the forefront. What I want must be what's important. And so... Underneath all of our sexual revolution, maybe the first sense of the lie that has herded us into this, this cultural iniquity is the lie that we should be able to do whatever we want. Which is really to unseat God as God and put ourselves in his place. If we can do whatever we want, rightfully speaking, we are God. And I've told you that before. But that sets us up for a whole assortment of sins. And recently, at least since the 60s, within the past 60 years, sexual freedom, can I say it like that? Isn't that the first way that was described? Wasn't that the first lie that we were kind of, shouldn't we be free sexually, especially within the idea of the third wave feminists? Women need to be as free as men to have indiscriminate sex with whomever whomever they want. And so sexual freedom, well, that's not too bad. I mean, we're just in that little realm of, Oh, sure, express yourself like you want to express yourself. Be free with yourself. And then we go a little further and we say, why would you want to withhold something that makes me feel good? Don't you know that I love this person? How could something that feels so right be wrong? Have you heard that in 10,000 popular songs and movies? That is the plot of about a million movies. Do what feels good, right? Right? and that 's okay that 's I get we 're going a little bit further outside of the parameters of sexual freedom, maybe maybe we 're just establishing it and then and then it 's a little bit more well, sex doesn 't matter anyway, so why not just have it with whomever you want and then it 's who are you to tell me who, can, who I can have it with or not and then it 's if you don 't do it sex outside of marriage, you must be you know deformed or some. In the 90s, I grew up in the 90s, well, teenager in the 90s, that tells you how old I am, right? I remember watching TV, listening to music, everything was, if you are not committing yourself illicitly and freely to other sexual partners, you must have something wrong with you. That's what I felt as a teenager. There's something wrong with me if I am not being promiscuous, and later on, it's ironic, isn't it, that now we'll say, well, what about, what about uh, abstinence? What about that as an idea? Oh, we couldn't possibly expect children to do that. Well, we've been telling them for 60 years not to, that it's natural, and so on and so forth. So what I'm telling, I'm beginning all this in the wrong place. This is not my notes, but I'm telling you, we are being herded off a cliff, but it didn't happen yesterday. And it didn't happen in the first place because sex was the issue. It happened in the first place because we won't hear God, our Creator, and listen to His Word. So here's what His Word has to say about these natural sexual sins. And then you can weigh to yourself whether the world and all of its wisdom, which will pass away according to the Word of God, is right. When you look around yourself and you see the position that we're in and the consequences that come upon a people when we are animalistic in our passions, are we better off? In the first place in this life, we're not better off, but in the day of judgment, we certainly are not. The first point today is adultery. Exodus 20:14, 14, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. As plain, as clear as can be. We'll also see some other texts regarding that. Simply put, adultery is the act of sexual intimacy with someone other than your spouse. It's a sexual infidelity within the bonds of marriage. And there are several ways that our culture practices adultery or promotes it or celebrates it. And I spoke on the first point last week with divorce, no-fault divorce. Divorce, essentially, according to Scripture, according to Jesus, results in some form of adultery. Second, today, we hear about open marriages, polyamory. You can have an assortment of sexual partners within a marriage, even. Third, there's a pragmatic and relevantized Ideology that says adultery can actually bring good for you, for your spouse, and for the culture around us. Now, that category is seemingly still a little bit out of the norm because practically it's almost impossible. In fact, the second two, polyamory and this relativized idea that it can actually be good is practically almost impossible to maintain. Because there is something about marriage and the intimacy of it that when that bond is broken, there is more emotional hurt than almost any other action that could possibly take place to a human being. You have been known by someone more intimately than any other person knows you, and you are not acceptable anymore to them, is what adultery says to the individual who takes who is the offended party? But authors of books, much media, much literary devices have been uh, promoted to say, "Since we're not monogamous by nature, that's one of the arguments for this idea that adultery can be good. They'll say, "cheating on your spouse isn't a moral act." One of them says that. Another, a psychologist and counselor says, "adultery," she calls it affairs. beware of misnomers." there also lies adultery is not merely an affair you can go to dinner with somebody and that be an affair this is adultery this is the defiling of the marriage bed she says this is a form of self-discovery doesn't that sound familiar a quest for a new or lost identity for these seekers Infidelity is less likely to be a symptom of a problem and more likely an expansive experience that involves growth, exploration, and transformation. And I don't give you those quotes to tell you that this is somehow the norm of activity of adultery, but I want you to know that this is the, this is the ideolo- ideology that promotes the same thing with regards to divorce, no-fault divorce, if I'm not comfortable anymore, if I'm not happy that's it. If I want to have another sexual partner, who are you to tell me I can't, regardless of your vows, regardless of the people that witnessed it, regardless that God has been the one who designed marriage for life? What I want to do, I'm telling you, the ideology of the self-governing, the autonomous person, the deifying of man is behind the growing and the increasing practice of adultery in our society and yet God includes it in his top 10 sins thou shalt not commit adultery the seventh sin but keep in mind that even the seventh sin in the seventh commandment here rests upon God's purpose in creation he's the one that joined two to one he's the one Jesus said who is the means of God creating all things Let not man separate. And we see how serious of a crime this is before God when we read in Leviticus 20 verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. This is is one of the civil laws of Israel that bound them to righteous action and, and taught them of the heinousness of sin. The prophet Jeremiah often pronounced woe upon Jerusalem for their adultery that they were committing without without any repentance, without any inhibitions. Jeremiah 7, 8 through 10, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You see, lies were what was leading Jerusalem to sin in these ways. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, idolatry, and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Here we are. The prophet Amos says, go ahead, keep on doing that, and just increase the weight of your condemnation. To take part in these sins is a great wickedness before God. The New Testament doesn't lay down civil laws as, as the Old Testament does necessarily for the church. But it clearly expresses God's mind towards adultery and many other sins. Paul clearly teaches that adultery offends the second great commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And we are taught that no adultery can be an expression of love. In fact, that's why you shouldn't judge me. Don't you believe love wins after all? So I should be able to express my love with anybody I choose, even if I'm married. No, the word of God says adultery offends your neighbor. And I would say that it doesn't matter Whether your neighbor, your spouse, is okay with it or not, because God is the one who has joined you together. And there are other consequences beside your immediate will in the matter. There are consequences of the family life, the home, the health, the well being of society, how children are raised. There are many consequences. We read Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Marriage is dishonored by what follows. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. That idea is there's an allusion to adultery there. In other words, you do not honor marriage, which means you don't honor the one who created marriage, who gave marriage when you defend or you support or you promote adultery or if you take part in it. And then we read this, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He adds sexually immoral, which we'll talk about that a little bit more. Two Greek words, different, a different of ideas here, and yet God will judge. Now he's speaking this to the church. He's he's preaching to the church here. He's giving this letter to a church that was under severe persecution in those days. And he was saying to them, be careful that you don't ascribe to the lies of the culture around you regarding sexual righteousness. God will judge those who partake of such things. Oftentimes, the same parameters is given to the church. I I went through and just, uh, uh, just quickly observed several of the letters of Paul. Almost every letter he is warning them of sexual immorality, adultery, some sort of lie that is promulgated in the society around them which they are being tempted to partake of. And he's saying, don't do it. Don't partake of it. The scriptures are clear from front to back that adultery is a great evil. And as I said last week, I believe that this act effectively drives a wedge between marriages. I don't believe it essentially does. I believe there is, a, there is opportunity for married couples who experience this evil against one or the other to have reconciliation and yet, even there, there is a memory, there is a scar, there is a difficulty to live in the same harmony and unity with your spouse. By the grace of God and the gospel, I believe there is real power to establish real unity. But it is difficult, to say the least. In the very least, it breaks the sanctity of the marriage vows as they were given And causes all manner of difficulties, even when a marriage is maintained, because the act of sexual intimacy matters. It matters deeply. Well, most of us are here today, I think, and we're sort of comfortably sitting in our pews saying, well, that's not me. You know, you think outside, oh, that's my, yeah, I know somebody who did that. Shame on him or her. You say, that's not me, so pastor's preaching about other people. And that we have the word of God, we have the words of our Lord, when he was speaking about the law in the Sermon on the Mount. And he was telling these people who had heard that it had been said, and he was telling them, what's really underneath that commandment? And he says in Matthew 5, 27, 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And we all say, yeah, that's right, we heard that. We're not doing that. I've never done that in my life. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in, with her in his heart. And now we all sit a little differently, at least all of us men. And I stand up here as a sinner guilty of this, absolutely guilty of this. And it's a shame it's an absolute shame. I do believe that Christ means doesn't mean to teach that there's no degree of difference between sins. I do believe that sins vary in degree in in atrocity and weight and 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 the evil that they Not only are in the action, but also that they bring. I believe there is a distinction, and so will judgment be a distinction in the day of judgment. But his purpose is to to demonstrate the depths of God's call to righteousness. It's not merely that we're not out there adulterating ourselves. It's that we, when we have the will, the desires inwardly, That don't conform to the will of God, it demonstrates the sinfulness of our hearts already before God. If this is the standard of love, if adultery is to break love, the second commandment, who can love? Who can obey God? And really, one of the purposes, I believe, of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount is to say, You are all unrighteous. You think you're Pharisees? You, you have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees were held in high esteem as righteous people. Jesus says, internally, you're not righteous. Who will stand? And the answer for us as believers is we don't stand by our own righteousness, do we? If I look at you and I ask you, do you stand because you've been sexually pure? I hope you'd be honest enough, at least most of you men, if I couldn't say all of you men, to say, no, I wouldn't stand before God. Righteous. But how do we stand before God righteous as sinners? Jesus. Through the the blood of Christ, through his righteousness. But that doesn't mean that we just get raise up, right, oh, well, then I'm just going to go along sinning in this way. Christ does not just save us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin. So that when we're tempted, men, when we're tempted, women, I'm not going to let you off altogether, right? We can see and we can read that there's a difference now that should be in us. Because we are new creation in Christ Jesus. So Colossians says, if then you have been raised with Christ, verse, chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Regards our Lord and also his righteousness. Things that please him and his eternal presence. Not on things that are on the earth. Now this can be defined improperly. This can be defined like, oh, you know, just disregard every earthly thing. Your job. (laughs) If that's true, what about your marriage? huh? So some Christians have said, aestheticism is taught here. Where we just, we let go of everything that this earth has to offer. That's not what he's talking about, earthly speaking. And we know that because he defines it here. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. What has died in us? Our proclivity. Our proclivity pursuit of sin ought to die in us when Christ who is your life appears then you will also appear with him in glory this is this is the therefore put to death therefore what is earthly that defines the earthly things we're not to seek after so put to death what is earthly in you and what are those things sexual immorality impurity Passion. The context demands that this is inordinate passion. It's not just passions like we have passions. Passions can be good. But this is inordinate, out of place, out of order. This is adultery, adulterous thinking, <sighs> evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So, sexual righteousness with regards to adultery. Begins inwardly, but even this is something we are to die to and can die to because Christ is our life. And we are seated with him in heavenly places. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and be in us and to conform us to the steps of Christ and not to this world. This should teach us two things, though, in regards to this world and how we relate to them. While we should seek righteous laws in our land, righteous laws will not cure our nation's sinful condition or establish in us righteousness before God. And let me tell you something. Apart from the gospel changing the hearts of the people of this country, there is no hope. If you think there's hope in the conservatives out there, you are absolutely mistaken. 47 conservative Republicans this week voted to uphold the Marriage Equality Act, which gives way to the legalization in the laws of the land, the codification of homosexual so-called marriage. 47 so-called conservatives. There is a big movement within conservative Republicanism today that establishes that there is no problem with all sorts of sexual perversion. Many of them are just mere libertarians, which use the same principle, do whatever you want to do as long as you do, don't do physical harm to your neighbor. So although I'm a conservative, and I vote along those principles that I find consistent within the word of God, I do not hope in that party whatsoever. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and vote. We have an opportunity to vote. We should do it. We should take part. We should seek righteous laws. I rejoice in Roe versus Wade being overturned. But this fight will not be won by our politicians. What, I mean fight. This, this spiritual warfare will not be won. They are going to follow along where the popularity is at the moment. Both parties... This is why we don't lead with politics. We lead with gospel. And we have to. And that's the only loving way to lead as the church. Politics, government, follows as a result of a society and a people being taken in by the truth of the love of God through Jesus Christ to save sinners. This is one of the reasons I pray for China China has a huge underground church. I I don't think China, we think about it as this great, maybe possible power out there that's going to take over the whole world. The church of Jesus Christ might take over all of China before that happens. Don't limit God's ability in the gospel. And that goes for us, too, who see the times changing in our society. Now is not the time to fall back into fear and to quake and not be committed to the gospel. Because this is the only hope for our relatives who struggle with sexual immorality and adultery and all forms of temptation. The gospel is our hope. Such were some of you. Me. If I have the courage next week, I'm going to tell you a little about how the gospel sexually delivered me if I have the courage because it's humiliating in some way what happened to me but God's word the gospel has delivered me second and I don't want to talk about this but I have to I think polygamy polyandry as well polygamy you know is the man who takes many one or more wise Polyandry is the woman who takes many husbands, and that's very rare in the history of the world. Sometimes it's more spoken of now as sort of an idea of equality, although it's just foolish. But polygamy is in the scriptures, isn't it? It's very relevant as we read the scriptures that we answer the question of polygamy. Is that okay? I mean, we see David and Solomon and all these great men in the past, Kings usually, the great, the the powerful, taking several wives to themselves. Ironically, this begins with Jacob, with God's people. Remember Jacob? He goes, his uncle Laban, oh, you can marry my daughter Rachel, night of the wedding. Jacob is probably drunk, I don't know. But he goes into the tent, it's dark in there, he puts Leah in there. It's not our custom to marry off the youngest first. You got my oldest daughter. Well, seven more years of work. And then he gets Rachel, and there you have amongst God's people, the first polygamous relationship. And I'm, I'm sure that it just continues to some degree, even while in Egypt. Because they come out of Egypt, and Mo- Moses never... There's no word in Scripture that supports polygamy, but just like with divorce, because of the hardness of their heart, Moses gives parameters about the activity. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17... If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and I'm just going to summarize this, essentially you can't give the inheritance of the firstborn to the to the loved son, to the loved wife's son, you give it to the unloved wife's son if he's the firstborn. That's the summary. But there it is given, it's sort of a given if a man has two wives, just like with divorce. And I can just hear Jesus saying, it's because of the hardness of your heart. Moses gave this. In the New Testament, perhaps the only thing that speaks directly to the issue of polygamy is 1 Timothy 3, 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And then verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. But many disagree that this was in regards to polygamy, but rather regarding divorce. Or regarding remarriage, or various things surrounding that. But the essential teaching is that these must have one wife at a time, essentially, which would, of course, include polygamy, and whether or not divorce would be acceptable with exceptions or not. But this matter is not answered with regards to explicit text saying you can or you cannot in the word of God, but it is answered theologically, isn't it? It is answered by what we've already seen with regards to Christ's words about the creation design. Have you not read Matthew 19, 4? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Those are singular verbs or singular nouns there. Hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. The same... The same grounding of why you can't just divorce your spouse on a whim also is the grounding why polygamy is not established as a righteous form of practice in the word of God. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. But it even becomes more clear when we come to the New Testament and we see what every marriage represents before God. Our marriage in a sense, is the analogy of what is actually true for eternity. And that is the relationship of Christ and his church. His church. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 very clearly uses the same creation pattern to say that Christ loved his church and gave himself for her. Singular. Jesus does not have two brides. To say anything that he does is heresy. He has one bride. The church. And he died for her. These two theological truths are very clear. And they clearly make polygamy a sin before God. And you say, what about David? He had at least 10 concubines and Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines and Jacob. And, And yet, if we were doing a study of polygamy in the Old Testament and you look at their houses... You look at their lives, you look at the consequences of what these relationships unfolded. Now, God in his providence, in his merciful providence, and by the way, we should take stock in that because we are a part of that merciful providence, shows mercy even where heinous sin is involved in the Old Testament. Sexual sins of all sorts are found in the Old Testament. This is why we cannot merely be, in the old ways of saying it, prudes. Act like it's not in front of us all over the scriptures because we really need to be forgiven for these things. And we see that God forgives sinners. One of the things I want to do as we close this series is I'm going to preach on Psalm 51. David adulterates himself, murders a man in his own charge as king to take his wife, And then Psalm 51 is that great penitent prayer. And God forgives David. Third, I hope that you'll bear with me, but we need to consider these things. The third is generally sexual immorality, fornication, sex outside of marriage. And this includes any sexual intimacy outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Here's the works of the flesh Galatians 5:19 Now the works of the flesh are evident he begins this way sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry he goes on and this is what he says also he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with regards to sexual sins among among others that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God This is why it matters so deeply This is one of the many texts that say the same thing regarding all manner of sexual sins, namely that those who are identified before God by their sexual sins, among other sins, in these ways will not inherit the kingdom of God, or positively it says that they will inherit eternal judgment in hell. This is where we need to stop for a minute and ask ourselves, am I willing to hold this truth over against a society that says, God cannot be loving if that's the consequences for me doing what I want to do? Are you going to be persuaded by that? Why would God withhold what I want to do, what makes me happy? And not only withhold that from me, but judge me. Not invite me into his eternal kingdom. And in fact, pour out his wrath upon me. And we have to ask ourselves, is God good? Is he good to create boundaries for mankind? I was thinking this week about Adam in the garden. God puts him in the middle of a garden and says, here's all this good for you but I want you to know something. And I was thinking, why, why this one tree? Is it because that tree was the knowledge of the tree, the good and evil, the tree of life? Or, you know, What was it about this tree? And I think this is, if I could give you my take, it's because God in saying no to man is telling man, I am God. I am God. I am good. And you will believe me, and you will obey me, or you will reject me, and you will disobey me. And you will try to be God. And what comes from us being God is death. Hurt, pain, judgment, thorns, briars, God's wrath. He made us in his image to glorify him. Jesus says or Paul says we are not our own we are bought with a price so glorify God in your body which is Christ The whole issue of who we will believe as I said before comes down to who is God There's so many forms of sexual immorality, we're not going to go through them all. The Greek words porne, pornea, pornos, and so on, we know one way that our society is buried in this sin is through pornography. Something that in Paul's day, they probably I'm sure they had some access to with artists in the Greek culture, Roman culture, but in our society, it is... It is so widespread. It's everywhere. In fact, they believe that now. One in every three women in our country. At least one. Time per week access pornography. But the younger generation. It's where to 70 80 percent. Women. Which never used to be the case. What results in this, in this life, in pornography, the excesses, the mental torment, the emotional instability, the divisions between relationships, the impossible perception of truth that people that are devoted to this form of immorality some of them don't know their right hand from their left hand with regards to truth real life and what is fake it's all a lie the person at the end of the other end of the camera doesn't know you they don't care about you and you don't care about them and everything is based from there it goes downhill and it corrupts marriages it corrupts single men like you wouldn't understand, it, it, it doesn't have a bottom, it seems. It goes further and further and further into depravity until there is no division, there are no limits to where the wickedness stops. I can't even talk about some of the things that I've read with regards to where people go in that depravity. And one of the the, the fundamental lies about it is that it's all done in secret. It's all in secret. You don't even have to include anybody else. You are made in God's image. Nothing you do is in secret. Nothing you partake of is in secret. And I will not be putting myself out on a limb here to say that there are many in this church that struggle with it. I struggled with this for years. Years. It's addictive. Men, we need to be honest in this church. We need to be honest with each other, with our wives. This can hurt your wife, in a way that you cannot imagine. And this church needs to be a church that faces these temptations and fights and claws, tooth and nail by the power of God's word and by the church, with each other's help, holding each other accountable, plucking out our eyes, the eyes of self-righteousness, the eyes of self-conceit, The eyes of pride. I don't want people to know that about me. We are sinners, all of us. I know that about you. I know that about you. You come to me and you tell me I'm struggling with a sin. I am not going to sit there and get, so, oh, I couldn't, can't believe that's you. In some ways, yes, I want to say that. But in some ways, we're all there in various temptations. And so here I want to say this is a great sin and I want to say that it is so accessible that it must be accessed by people in this church. So let's fight it together. Let's fight it for the sake of our spouses. Let's fight it for the sake of our Lord. Let's fight it for the sake of our neighbor who struggles with it. And who is told by this world that it's good and it's natural. There is a, a, there is a confession from a popular singer, I, Billie Eilish or something, who says it corrupted her brain. She's not a believer. She said pornography actually corrupted her entire viewpoint of life. She's on, honest enough to say that. And Christ can give us deliverance. From those things. Okay, closing remarks. There's other things to be said. We are surrounded by lies regarding sexual righteousness. We have been told them from the 60s on for 60 years, they've been in our society. Nowadays, we think that we're moral if we watch movies from the 80s that only have sexual liaisons between men and women. That's not any more righteous, necessarily. Okay? So we've learned today what God's the biblical's view, the biblical view of sexual righteousness when it comes to man and woman. And I've already offered that up to you in, in other ways in this series. God has designed that we partake in sexual activity, intimacy, only when we are married, man and woman, in one union, that is when it is good and right before God. Everything else fails before God to come to his standard of righteousness. And yet I would encourage you that while today heterosexual sin is not even on the radar, and I would argue that in most churches it may not even be on the the radar of what we ought to be combative against. I would argue, again, even sins of child molestation where we are going, pedophilia, where we are going, transgenderism, other forms of perversions. We'll talk about those a little bit next week. That is not where this battle begins. Sexual righteousness begins with male and female. And that rests on the word of God. So I just want to ask you, do you believe the word of God? Will you, will you rest on that in the face of a society, society that will hold you in contempt, that will call you, not in their words, but you will be seen as a heretic, no better than somebody who should be burned at the stake. There are became, becoming more and more violent reactions against people that hold these truths. You shouldn't even be allowed to live, they will say. And I won't be surprised if one day we see those violent action, words coming to pass if things continue. But what about this last thing that we often hear? And I want to put this to you as we leave today Are you a hypocrite? Can you speak about these things? You know, the, the world is very quick to say Christians are hypocrites. You'll, you'll talk about this sexual righteousness and you yourself are partaking in these things. First of all, Christians must not be partaking in these things. And if you are, Fight it tooth and nail. Fight it by the spirit that's in you. Fight it amongst the church. Fight it with the help of God's bride. In all the means necessary. But fight. And let me tell you something. If you fight against sin, you are not a hypocrite to call sin out. If you are struggling against sin, you're not a hypocrite to say it is sin. Because your struggle against it is an agreement that it's sin. When Jesus talks about hypocrisy, he talks about it in two ways. The first is to hold others to a standard which you don't hold yourself. To create standards that you don't even bear yourself. If that's true of you, you are being a hypocrite in regards to this. If you think you can just go on living sexual, promiscuous lifestyle without any conviction of soul or without any change, and you want to say that it's sinful for others to do it, you're a hypocrite. Shut your mouth. But like I said, the second is to portray yourself as righteous when you're not. But that's not the Christian. The Christian readily, readily admits that we are sinful. We are not in the category of sinner anymore because Christ has saved us. We don't go on sinning with the same resolution and the same passion for it. We are committed to Christ such that we want to be conformed to his image. We're not comfortable with the same sort of sinful pattern of lifestyle. And so we repent of our sin. We confess our sin before God. That is not hypocrisy. And so if this is true of you, If you're a sinner before God and you're resting on Jesus to save you and you agree with Jesus' word in regards to sexual righteousness, do not be kowtowed, do not be herded off the cliff with your mouth shut in regards to sexual righteousness. If you have, and that doesn't mean you go to your neighbor and you just start chewing them out. God forbid. But when the time comes to speak, pray for wisdom. Pray for clarity. Pray for boldness. Pray for courage. Pray that in the face of this sinful and crooked generation, you would love your neighbor enough to speak the truth in love so that they would repent of their sin and be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ that has covered you. Don't be led into a corner. Don't be silenced on the truth because the truth is the only thing that will set them free before God.